When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had finished everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. This is the word of the Lord. Luke tells us five times in one chapter that Jesus' parents were observant Jews. That in the gospel, when we see God present in Jesus of Nazareth, we are seeing Israel's God. It is the community of Israelites who produced Jesus of Nazareth into an observant family. One of the laws was that a woman who had given birth to a male child was deemed ceremonially unclean for 40 days. She was not to go up onto the temple mount, to the temple precincts, nor was she to touch anything holy for 40 days. Then she was to present herself along with offering sacrifice to God. If she was a woman of means, she was to offer a lamb. She was to offer a pigeon or dove. If she was poor, as was true in Mary's case, two pigeons or two doves would suffice. A part of the Torah also said that the first male child of every family should be brought to the temple and dedicated to the Lord. The Roman Catholics picked up on that with the belief that the firstborn son in every family should become a priest. So Jesus is brought to the temple, firstborn of Mary. But you and I today are more interested in what Simeon had to say and what Anna had to say. What happened to these two old people? I think it's interesting that all those years ago Luke found it very important not only to have male witnesses but female witnesses. Over and over in his gospel and in the book of Acts you have a male witness but you also have a female witness as being very important. Let's take a look. I've underlined four things. The first thing I underlined is the part about the Spirit. The Spirit was upon Simeon. The Spirit led Simeon back to the temple on this particular occasion. We've been seeing all through Advent 
that this story is unfolding because God is ready to make something happen. There was a man named John sent by God. There was an angel named Gabriel sent by God to Zechariah. Then later there was an angel named Gabriel sent to Mary in Nazareth. God is very much at work here. God is directing this drama, even if those players in it are not aware that God is directing the drama. A few days ago in the Wall Street Journal, there was a preview of a very important art show that's being held in Denver, Colorado. It features the painting and the sculpture of Charles Russell. What first caught my attention was that as soon as it's been presented in Denver for several weeks, the whole show is coming to Tulsa, Oklahoma, to Gilcrease Museum. Year after year, as we've had Barton, Clinton, Gordy presenters come to our city, we've offered them an opportunity to see Gilcrease, to see Philbrook. Uh, for many years, Neva Brannan was the docent at Gilcrease who took our speaker to show him or her these magnificent works of art. I went along and I heard something a little different, a little bit new every year I went listening to what Neva had to say. Charles Russell, she liked very much. And so I'm looking forward to this show's coming to Tulsa in a few weeks. It was interesting to me to see what this critic out in Denver had to say. Charles Russell was born in 1864, just a year before the war between the states would be ended. He was born to a family of some uh, money in St. Louis, Missouri. From the time he was a little boy, he wanted to go west. He saw these wagon trains headed west, more and more of them. As that 19th century progressed, he wanted to go as well. Finally, when he was 16, his mother and father thought, let's let him go one time. When he sees how rough it is out there, he'll come back to St. Louis. But they were wrong. They entrusted him to a friend who took him all the way to Montana. He loved it. He got a job as a cowboy. He hardly knew one end of the horse from the other when he first started, but he learned. He was a cowboy for 11 years, and during that 11-year period, he started painting. Painting horses, painting cows, painting buffalo, painting cowboys, painting Native Americans as well. And he got better and better. At age 32, fell in love and got married. And many say that wife was the key because she started requiring him to spend a certain number of hours every day painting. And she was very good at selling what he was painting. When he was 50 years old, he painted one of his best-known works. And this critic in Denver loved this one as well. It's a painting of buffalo just as the sun is rising on a cold morning. And these huge, beautiful animals are snorting. You can see the cold as the warm air comes out of their nostrils. You can see the cold around them. And Charles Russell called this painting, When the Land Belonged to God. And I understand what he was saying, and you understand. Before people messed it up, it was really beautiful. But there's a deeper truth in the Bible, and that is that no matter how messed up it is, it still belongs to God. No matter how strong the Caesar in Rome, no matter the president, the governor, the mayor, the city council, the school board, it still belongs to God. And God is still working at God's own pace throughout history. God sends the Holy Spirit just as he sent it to Simeon. Number two, 
Preachers love this part, of course. The Holy Spirit sent Simeon back to the temple. Now, he was a frequent worshiper there, but on this particular occasion, the Holy Spirit sent him back. And guess what? Anna, 84 years old in our translation here, was there every day, every night, fasting and praying, anticipating the arrival of God's Messiah. Good things happen in the temple. Good things happen in the church. Three weeks ago, we had the beautiful Lessons and Carols. The Panseras do such a great job with that. Uh, they studied at Cambridge uh, University in England. Uh, very familiar with the nine Lessons and Carols that came from King's College Chapel at Cambridge. A few years ago, Gail and I took a fast train from London out to Cambridge. There are non-stops at various times of the day, just 60 minutes out to Cambridge if you get on one of those fast non-stop trains. It's a beautiful little university community, of course. We enjoyed walking around and looking, but we wanted specifically to see King's College Chapel. Now, when we say chapel here, we mean the smaller place. King's College Chapel is not small. The foundation was laid by the king in 1446. It's 563 years old now. The stonemasons who worked on the building worked on site. It took them 65 years to complete the exterior of the building. And then the craftsmen came who worked on the inside, and they spent a little more than 40 more years. So, 105 years after the cornerstone was laid, finally you had pretty much what you can see today. A building begun 563 years ago. It was 91 years ago that this chapel, choir, musicians, began to do the nine lessons and carols. We have it in the Great Hall, in candlelight. Uh, the Panseras picked some of the finest instrumentalists in our city, and some of the finest vocalists in our choir, and readers, little boys and girls, teenagers, older men and women, to read the lessons. Because good things happen in church. Good things happen in the temple, and we encourage people to come. Number three, Simeon Speaks. Now, musicians know that what he said is commonly called the Nuc Dimittis. Nuc Dimittis. The Roman Catholic Church preserved these two words and Simeon's speech, so they named it. You recall that it was 300 years after the death and resurrection of our Lord that Constantine embraced Christianity and sent his mother to the Holy Land to search out all the most important places in Jesus' life and to build churches over them. She did the best she could, even though it had already been 300 years. When she got to Bethlehem and had the Church of the Nativity built there, she also brought a scholar named Jerome and put him down into the basement under the church and said, Work until you get all the Holy Scriptures translated into Latin. The first two words that Simeon speaks are nuc dimittis. Now let thy servant depart in peace. He felt he had been a watchman, like one standing on the walls looking for the arrival of Messiah, and that now he had seen him. Release me from being a watchman 
I have seen the coming of the Lord. The day of salvation has arrived. And salvation has to do with wholeness. When people know themselves rightly related to God by the grace of God, rightly related to each other by putting ourselves out for the well-being of the other. One of the movies that's done really well this fall is called The Blind Side. Perhaps you've seen it. Sandra Bullock has a major role. It's a true story. A young African-American growing up in the poorest parts of Memphis, Tennessee. He's from the projects. No father in the picture. His mother's a crack addict. A football coach sees a young African-American male who seems to have unusual size, unusual ability, and he recruits him into a private school called Briarcrest. But his crack-addicted mother abandons him once more, and he's destitute. He starts slipping into the gym where he sleeps at night. He finds that after basketball games, there's leftover popcorn, and so he survives for a while. And then one day, one of the wealthier women there in Memphis, bringing her children to Briarcrest School, sees this young man and hears something of his story. That's the Sandra Bullock role, and she takes him home. She and her husband raise him as their own. He's barely literate when they first meet him, but he's bright, and he learns very well. He's big and strong, but he's docile. And Sandra tells him, you know how important it is for you to help protect your brother and sister here in our house? Well, that's what you're doing. You're protecting your teammates. And gradually he becomes more and more aggressive. He's graduated, goes on to college, becomes an All-American, graduates on the dean's list, and was recruited out of there by the Baltimore Ravens. The woman whose role Sandra Bullock plays, was interviewed recently by our United Methodist reporter. And she said, I don't think he had any religious training at all. But at our house, we pray before we eat. We pray before we sleep. We go to church on Sunday. And what we saw was a young man whom many had counted as worthless, was one more child of God who needed a little help getting home. Just one more child of God who needed a little help getting home. Number four. Our attention then shifts to Anna, 84 years old. She just stays at the temple all the time. So everybody around the temple knows Simeon, and everybody around the temple knows Anna. Mary and Joseph don't know Simeon and Anna. They don't live in Jerusalem. They're not frequently at the temple, they live at a little nowhere place called Nazareth. But Anna begins to teach all of those who are expectantly looking, as she and Simeon have been, for the coming of the Messiah of God. So she and Simeon become forerunners of others who will try best they can to describe what God was doing in Jesus Christ. Tulsa's been talking for days about the death of Oral Roberts. I want to say a little bit about that myself. I was never a part of Oral Roberts' ministry. In fact, I was pretty perplexed 
35 years ago when Dr. Charles Allen announced to our staff one day at the First Methodist Church in Houston that he had invited Oral Roberts to come and preach at our church. When everyone else had left the room, I walked over to him and asked, Why? Why did you invite Oral Roberts to come and preach? He said, Well, I was at a big meeting in Atlanta, Georgia. I met Oral Roberts. I liked him. I really liked him. I'll bet he can draw a crowd, he said. He said he would preach 8.30 and 11 and again at 7.30 that night. So he's coming. I said, fine. I'd never met him, of course. I'd only heard him on the radio, little snippets here and there. I'd seen little bits on television, though I was not a regular viewer of his. I was the understudy, so of course it was my job to meet their plane at the airport on Saturday afternoon. I had a wife and three small children, but I met the Roberts plane out at Hobby in Houston. I drove them to a downtown hotel, uh, got their bags into their rooms, and then I asked, is there anything else I can do for you before I pick you up in the morning at 8 o'clock? And he said, have you taken a tour of that new Astrodome? I said, I've been to ball games there. Well, he said, Evelyn, I haven't seen the Astrodome. I understand they give tours all the time. Is that right? I said, they do. He said, I'd like to see the Astrodome. So I drove him and Evelyn out to the Astrodome, bought tickets, and we took the tour. It's interesting to walk through a crowd with Oral Roberts. Uh, everybody recognized him. You can see people elbowing each other and pointing at him. He and Evelyn were very gracious. This tour lasted about an hour and a half. They took you to every restaurant in the place back in those days. And this is what they serve here. And this is what they serve there. And this is what it looks like when you're sitting just behind the third base dugout. And this is what it looks like when you're on the, uh, the first base side and so on. They walk you all the way around the thing. So I had about an hour and a half or so with them. And then I drove them to the hotel. Next morning, I picked them up. He preached to a standing room only crowd at 830 11 o'clock, we all went to lunch together. He preached a standing room only crowd that night at 7.30. He was masterful. I sat just a couple of feet from him and watched him. He was masterful. Monday morning, I took him to the airport and they flew away to Tulsa. I didn't see nor hear from the Roberts for 14 years. And then it was announced in the Tulsa World, Tulsa Tribune, that I was going to be the new pastor at Boston Avenue. And I got a call down in Beaumont, Texas. Or Robert said, I remember how kind you were to Evelyn and me when we were in Houston a long time ago. We're members of your church in Tulsa. We'll be there the first Sunday to welcome you. And when I walked into this pulpit for the first time, they were both seated out there about the sixth or seventh pew. And they waited in line to speak to me when the service was over. Now, you know they didn't come every Sunday. But for years, they were here every three or four months. They would be here. And they always stood in line to speak to me when the service was over. And if I ran into him anywhere at all, he always stopped and spoke to me. I've been around a few other fairly uh, famous folks and people who have been on television. And I've seen some of them shake hands with one person and already be looking at the next person. Shake and look. Shake and not with Oral Roberts. When he took hold of your hand, he looked to the back of your eyes. I had never seen anybody look deeper into your eyes than Oral Roberts did. But his eyes were warm in person, warm and kind and compassionate. You felt that even if it was only a minute, you had his undivided attention. 
He really wanted to speak to you and hear from you. Dale and I would see them in time to time at lunch on Sunday, and he always invited us over to the table. I saw him. We saw him not long after he had lost the city of faith. Medical school gone, law school gone, city of faith padlocked. I said, Dr. Roberts, I'm so sorry. I'm really, really sorry. And he said, so am I. I thought I was doing the right thing. I really believe God had told me to do this because in my experience, and on the way home I asked Gail if she heard this, and she had heard it too, in my experience, he said, very few get healed by prayer alone. They need the best medical people the world can find. That's what I tried to do, he said, bring the best I could find to Tulsa. After Dr. Roberts turned 91, Evelyn had died four years before after a 66-year marriage. I saw him interviewed, and he said, I wake up every morning and I ask God, are you taking me home today? But after a few weeks of that, when he didn't answer me, I quit asking. Two weeks ago, Oral Roberts fell at 91. The paper simply said he cracked several bones. He was rushed to the hospital, and lying there, he got pneumonia. Sunday he was really low, and Monday his daughter Roberta said she and Richard were walking down the hall to his room, and just before they pushed open the door, they could hear their daddy singing. He was singing. And they walked in, and he said, Oh, good, now you can help me. And she said, We sang. I'd never seen his eyes look any happier, she said. He looked at us and said, I'm going home today. I'm going home for Christmas. Amen.